0: Good to see everybody here on this holiday weekend. Good to have those of you that are apart with us through the internet. Glad you're worshiping with us today. Hope you all have had a a wonderful weekend. You know, as you just heard prayed a moment ago, uh, as we think about being a church on two campuses here in Colonial Heights, also over in Midlothian, we are literally today a church that is all over the world. We have a, a team of about 30 young people and adults that are in East Asia. They're finishing up... Uh, this week, we have a team of about ten that 's been in the ukraine they 're also finishing up this week and then we have a team of again about thirty that is leaving in, in just moments uh, heading to Nicaragua and all of these teams sharing the gospel of Christ working a lot of them with children teaching children uh, they 're they're, they're feeding the poor they 're helping build homes they 're encouraging and helping the church in those places so a great work is being done how exciting to think that as we gather as a family Family, that, that our family is literally everywhere around the world today. And I sure hope you'll keep them in your prayers. Well, folks, we're, we're looking at a topic today that, that has become uh, very sensitive uh, when it is discussed. And it is a topic I actually picked to address uh, back in the middle of May uh, not being completely aware of what was going to unfold between then and today. And I'm referring to the topic of of homosexuality. And of course, we've just had the decision from the Supreme Court. And uh, as I address this, I, I want you to know, I, I understand that, that my comments can be found to be offensive to some. Uh, just in total disagreement, um, Maybe you got a family member, uh, a, a friend, and you're, and you're kind of a little defensive on their behalf. And, you know, what I'm talking about today for some in our culture is not just a matter of disagreeing. We have one view. and have a, there, there are some of my views that would probably be defined as hated in our culture. And and I think probably in like that, I've been in situations like that before where I'm just in total disagreement. You you know, you just have about so much you take, you think, I just don't want to be here anymore. I I don't want to be a part of this. Uh, And maybe you think, man, the most honorable thing I can do is get up and walk out. You know, I I would like to ask you not to to walk out. And, And here's why. It's not because I want my best shot at changing your mind. It's not because I think, boy, if if I can keep you here to the end, you'll see how wrong you are. I would ask that you would endure, that you would stick it out, maybe for this reason. At least you would understand what this other idea, what this other opinion is coming from. Why do we hold the view we hold? Why do we say what we say, believe what we believe? Because I can tell you how we're often labeled and it's not the reason I hold the view I hold. I I don't hold the view I hold because I hate gay people. I I don't hold the view I hold because I think they're second class citizens and and should be run out of the community and I want all of you to hate them with me. That That couldn't be anything further from the truth. I wouldn't be a part of anything like that. That is not... Why I hold the views I hold. I hold the views I hold because of this book. And I believe this. And I understand not everybody in our culture, as a matter of fact, most of our culture does not believe this. And that does make it hard to have a dialogue, to, to see is there, hey, how can we come to the middle? Because if you don't have a common ground of belief that you can discuss things with, that, then you, you can't usually come to an agreement. So I get that, that most in our culture do not believe this book. There may be some in this room that do not believe this book. But, but I do. I do believe it, and I I believe this book because in this book I have found a way to know God, to know His love and His forgiveness, to know eternal life. And not only can I know that, but so can the homosexual. So can any and every other sinner. I, I believe this book because this book has answers like no other religion and philosophy offers not not just answers but answers that actually correspond with reality that actually work in a in a world in which we live and so I do hold to this book and because I believe it then I have to let it shape the way I think the way I talk the way I act Uh, I have to let it shape my beliefs and so what I hope you'll see today is where that comes from what it says and why I hold the view that, that I hold. And so I, I hope you can stick it out and get to the end. And uh, at, at least understand what the other side or somebody like me believes. Of course, as I said, we all know on, on Friday, uh, June 26th of this year, a little over a week ago. The Supreme Court handed down a decision that, that legalized same-sex marriage. It, it is a decision that defies the word of God, if you're a believer in this. It is a decision that, in my opinion, uh, defies nature, defies common sense, and defies thousands of years of human history spread across all kinds of cultures. It is a decision, interestingly enough, that um, when, when they made that decision, they did something very similar to what they did over 40 years ago when they made a decision about abortion. And that is they went into the constitution and they found a right. They found a freedom that doesn't exist. It's, it's nowhere in there. There's nothing in the constitution that implies the right or, or the freedom that, that they're granting. They just made it up. They just invented it. And they don't have the authority to do that. that. The congress does. Congress can invent a law. Congress can can create a law. But the Supreme Court cannot. But their ability to do that, their ability to get away with that is, is on the winds of culture. That is just where we are as a culture. To be quite honest with you folks, I'd have been surprised if anything less happened than what happened last Friday. That actually would have been more shocking to me uh, i absolutely as i imagine many of you did anticipated the decision uh, that we would get so in that decision homosexuality probably made its greatest and, and unparalleled gain in in being validated as a as a lifestyle uh, being accepted in america and that has left many of us who who don't agree with that kind of reeling hasn't it Uh, we we've had a variety of emotions as a matter of fact, if you, if you look on Facebook, there's two dominant emotions among our ilk and, and that's fear and that's anger. What is this going to mean? Where's our country going? What is this going to mean to the church? And, and we're afraid or we're angry. This should not have been done. This is not right. The Supreme court can't, can't do that. And there's anger. And you know, I, I think in a moment like this, both fear and anger are very natural uh, I, I don't think it's wrong to fear fearful. I don't think it's wrong to be angry. I mean, certainly the Bible talks about a righteous anger, right? But as we think about, okay, now where do we go from this day? Where, where do we move forward? Anger and fear can't be what shapes us. Anger and fear can't be what is motivating and directing us because that's not what God would have. I know that because the Bible says, at least on fear, 2 Timothy 1, 7, we've not been given a spirit of fear. Man, as we think about how we think through this, how we address it, how we move forward, we've been given a spirit of power, of of love, and of self-control. We're not going to be out of control. Our thoughts and ideas are not going to run away with us, but there's there's going to be a self-control about what we do. And And even when our anger is righteous, folks, still at the end of the day, our anger is not going to get God's work done. Our anger is not going to be how that is accomplished because the scripture says our anger just doesn't accomplish the righteousness of God. So these can't be the things that shape us and move us. Well, then what shapes us and move us? Well, it should be the word of God, right? And so what I want to try to do today is, is not respond out of fear and anger, but say, OK, wait a minute. Here's where we are. Here's where we're going. So let's let let let's Stop. And, and let's kind of reevaluate, let's reorient ourselves to what does God's word say? What does it say about marriage? What does it say about homosexuality? And then kind of in the vein of where we've been in this sermon series, where, where we're looking at uh, life, we're looking at people through the filter of the gospel, we're going to see then how do we relate with the homosexual? How do we relate with this person? Because we are called to relate with him. But what, what does that look like? How do we move out with both love and acceptance and conviction, a a, a belief in truth? Because that's where the rub is, isn't it? it How do you do both? Is is that a contradiction? How do you hold to this idea and say wrong is wrong and then yet we're going to be loving and accepting? How do you do that at the same time? You know, oddly enough, we're going to see Jesus, bam, hit it right on the nail, We're going to see the perfection of his response in in dealing with an issue very much like this. So that's where we're going today. Before we get there, if you got a bulletin today, and if you didn't, I, I hope you'll pick one up on the way out. At the bottom of the bulletin, right there, it says Supreme Court decision. And I've put there for you a couple of websites. If this is something you want to study, learn a little bit more about, read a little bit more about beyond the message today, uh, I, I put two sites there that I think would be interesting. Uh, one is just a series of articles that have been written since... Last Friday. And then the other one. The one that ends with here we stand. Is a really good document. Very concise. But very thorough. At at what we believe as a church. And how we move forward. As a church also the here we stand you'll notice that the, the site that that is in is the ERLC.com ERLC.com that stands for ethics and religious liberty commission. That's a, a branch an entity of yours. It's it's of the Southern Baptist and it's our liaison to government politics law media cultural issues there's a wealth of information on there about anything and everything going on in our culture I'd really encourage you to to check it out this issue or otherwise uh, it's there for you it's it's a help for you so I hope you'll check those things out so today let's get back to today now uh, what I want to do is let, let's anchor ourselves in God's Word I want to show you a handful of verses not a lot of commentary I'm going to give on them I, I just think they're pretty clear and straightforward let's let God speak on marriage amen Let's see what it says here. A couple of verses. I want to start in Genesis. If you're not familiar with the Bible, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Genesis 2 is the very beginning. So you're finding this, this description, this idea on the very opening pages of this entire book. Its very beginning draws us to a definition, a description of marriage. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Proverbs chapter five. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely doe, a graceful, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always. Did you even know God talked like this? Be intoxicated always in her love. Song of Solomon, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Matthew, now I'm, I'm quoting the Matthew passage, this is just a requote of Genesis, but my point in quoting it is to show you that 1500 years after Genesis is, quote, is written, Jesus is quoting it. He is affirming what was taught in that passage. 1,500 years. That transcends a lot of culture. That transcends a lot of time. Uh, That transcends a lot of people. And here Jesus is 1,500 years later affirming that when He says, Have you not read that He who created from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate and then ephesians chapter 5 however let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband folks this is just a sampling of god on marriage this this is not all that the scripture has to say there's much more that that goes with this but i think you've seen enough to know i marriage is god's idea he created it, he invented it, and when he talks about it, you see devotion, you see commitment, you see romance. You know, I quoted the book of Solomon just so you'd see and to point out the fact. An entire book of the Bible is a poetic celebration of the romantic and sexual love between a man and a woman in marriage. An entire book of the Bible is dedicated to that. Of course, also in the Bible, which is a book that gives us everything we need for faith and life, everything we need to make life work. And so it gives instruction on how to make this thing called marriage work. And there are certainly some general ideas that apply to both mates. But it's amazing how much, much of the direction is specifically gender-related. Husbands, here's what you're to be and do as a male in this relationship. Wives, here's what you are to be and do as a female in this relationship. You realize all that instruction gets lost on a same sex marriage, which I find an interesting observation because the Bible does intend to give us everything we need to make life work, and yet it would have nothing to say to the same sex couple. So the idea that maybe God evolves. Maybe God changes. Maybe. No it doesn't appear that he ever had in mind. The idea of this being okay. And something that culture would, would finally arrive at. He offers no instruction on that. We also do hear God speak quite clearly, quite directly about homosexuality, which is in itself interesting to hear people talk about the Bible. You would think God is kind of vague on this. There's a lot of ways to take it. And yet, you know, I I, when I hear people say that, I always want to ask, did you actually read it? (laughs) Where do you get the vagueness and all the interpretation?" you? You tell me, let's hear God speak on this. Leviticus 18, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. That is an abomination, Seems pretty clear and direct. Well, somebody might say, well, I mean, how do you know sex is being referred to? And the word homosexual is not, not used. If you read, because we do sometimes take verses out of context... Make them mean what we want them to mean for our purposes. Is that, is that what I'm doing here? If you go and read all of Leviticus chapter 18, the entire chapter is about illicit sexual relationships. It's very clear that what is being discussed is sexual relationships. And in that, he says, a man should not lie with a woman as with a man. That is an abomination. Now, for some people, to quote anything out of Leviticus, it just automatically disqualifies it. And, and they, they would say to us, and I've heard this argument so many times, and I've seen believers apparently trapped by this argument. Oh, you go to Leviticus to say that homosexuality is wrong? Did you know in Leviticus it says not to eat shrimp? I don't see you preaching that. I, I don't see you holding to that rule. Says in Leviticus, there's all these sacrifices. You're not doing that, and so see, they think they've caught us because we're picking and choosing which verses. Oh, I'm going to use this verse because I don't like those people, and I'm going to use it to beat them up, and I'm going to ignore these others because, after all, who doesn't like shrimp? Are are we caught? Did they they catch us there? No, folks, uh, of course not. Leviticus is a book of the Jewish law. And that law is broken up into several categories. There is moral law. Thou shalt not lie. There is the, the civil law. It actually tells me what to do if I kill one of my neighbor's animals. You know, it's a farming society. That's a problem. They don't have laws about speeding because that wasn't a big issue back then. But, you know, if 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 I if I, you know, if I hurt somebody else's property, it gives all the details about how restitution restitution is made. So there's civil law. Then there's more the ceremonial law. This is about the the temple, this is about the priesthood, this is about the sacrifices. All of that is in there. And there's a dietary law that has a long list. It's not a short list. You can eat these things. You can't eat these things. Okay? So that's what we have in Leviticus. When we come into the New Testament, the New Testament makes some changes. By the way, 100% of Leviticus is valuable for study. 100% of it shows us, here's what God is doing. Here's how God thinks. There's principles for us to draw from that. But there are parts of Leviticus that are not applicable to the believer. Now, did, did I decide that? Is that what our denomination believes? No, Scripture told us that. In other words, we're letting Scripture tell us how to treat Scripture. So Jesus comes into the Gospel and He says... We're no longer going to follow the dietary laws. Now, there's more going on there than that for the sake of today. I'm not going into that. But it is Jesus that says all foods are clean. We're no longer going to follow the dietary laws. So I don't have to go to Leviticus and preach to you not to eat shrimp. By all means, have some shrimp today. Okay? I don't have to do that. I come into Hebrews, a big book in the New Testament that is directly related to Leviticus. The best way to understand Hebrews is to understand Leviticus. And, and Hebrews goes into a lot of detail about the temple, about the priesthood, about the sacrifices, and then shows how Jesus is the fulfillment of that. He is my high priest. And, and I don't perform all these different sacrifices because he was sacrificed for one time for all people, for all sin. So, I don't have to do those sacrifices. So, here again, there's parts, I still think it's valuable to understand what was, G- what was God teaching in all of these sacrifices for all these different sins and how understanding that helps you appreciate Why there's a cross and what Jesus did for you at the cross. But see, folks, in all those cases, it's the scripture telling me what to do with scripture. It's not me. It's not a denomination. It's the scripture. Do you know one thing that it doesn't tweak or change at all? The moral law. Nowhere in the New Testament does it say, listen, now that we're under grace and now that we're under the love and forgiveness of Jesus, it is now okay to lie. It is now okay to sleep with your neighbor's wife. It is now okay to murder. No, none of the moral law is changed. As a matter of fact, not only is it not changed, but all of the moral law of the Old Testament is repeated in the New Testament. So that's why I can go to Leviticus and say, this verse is absolutely applicable both before and after Jesus. And there's these other verses that are not applicable, but it's the New Testament that taught me that, not not me. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm completely lost. You All right, it's time to move on to the next point then. Okay, you know what? It's not just Leviticus too. That always kills me when people say, oh, you're building your argument on Leviticus. Leviticus isn't the only book that says this. Romans chapter 1. Let's go to the next slide in Romans 1. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable Passions. You know, sometimes when people are looking at what Scripture says about homosexuality, they'll say, well, it was addressing whether it was a committed relationship or not. You know, folks, when you read any of this, you don't pick up anywhere that this is about committed or uncommitted, you know, faithful or unfaithful. It says this passion, this desire is, is dishonorable. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relationships with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Next slide. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. You know, folks, as you read from about Romans one twenty one on, it is describing for us what it looks like when an individual... Or when a society rebels and rejects against God and rejects God. And it it has a long list of sins. Homosexuality is not the only sin it lists. There's a long list of sins following verse 28. These are all evidence of of your rebellion, of your rejection uh, of God. But when it comes to homosexuality, it actually teaches this is almost like this is a pinnacle, not when an individual, but when society has rejected God. When society says we're no longer going to acknowledge God, it it treats the arrival of, of the the societal approval of homosexuality as kind of that evidence and sign. So now I realize you say, well I don't I don't believe the Bible. I don't I don't agree with that. That's fine. My point in saying that is when you look at the church, when you look at people like me running around like, you know, crazy right now, fearful and afraid and man, what's wrong with them? Get over it, you homophobes. No, it's the scripture that says, oh my gosh, wait a minute. I I remember this. The scripture talked about this. It, It says that when we as a culture arrive at this place, we're sending a signal, you're not God here. We don't acknowledge you anymore. And for believers, that's kind of a scary moment, isn't it? We're going to get anxious about that. So, again, you don't have to agree with me, but at least you understand why we're running around kind of crazy right now. You know, another thing you will hear people dismiss in Scripture, and not just homosexuality, really truth is all sexual morality. Anything that speaks to the sexual relationship. We, we dismiss a lot of that today under, well, that's, a, that's an old book. My goodness, what is this, 2,000 years ago? How long are you going to live under the, the customs and the norms? You know why they wrote this back then? Because that's what everybody believed. That, that's what culture believed. That's what people believed. And so they just kind of structured it around that. Oddly enough, folks, when Paul wrote to the church in Rome, Rome was a society that fully embraced homosexuality the Bible is not just mirroring what everybody believes it was just as countercultural. it was just as unpopular 2,000 years ago to say that homosexuality is wrong as it is today now you say well okay that doesn't make me believe it but what I'm saying is you can't just dismiss it as an old book that was writing what people believed back then because it wasn't uh, and, and of course Romans is not the only book that quotes this also. Another verse, 1 Corinthians. Do not be deceived. Don't, don't trick yourself into believing this is about love. Don't trick yourself into believing that God's okay with sin, that God has changed his mind, that this is no big deal to God. Well, God doesn't... Don't trick yourself with that thinking. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. These things are sin, and there is a consequence for that sin. Homosexuality is not the only one, is it? Hear that a lot. Well, you know, there's a lot of sins out there. There sure are. And homosexuality is one of them. These are sins. God is bothered by them. There's bad news if you choose to be involved with and to be identified with these kinds of things. But but there's also good news. You can be saved from that. There's a judgment and a condemnation that comes with this, but you can be saved. God still loves that person. Look what it says here. Such were some of you. Some of you were liars. Some of you were glutton. Some of you were greedy. Some of you were sexually immoral. But look what happened. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. How did that happen? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. When I turn from sin, when I turn to faith in Christ, I can be rescued and I can be saved from that sin that keeps me from knowing God and knowing His heaven. Now, Folks, what, I don't know what I've quoted here today. Eight, seven, eight, nine passages. Okay, hopefully you get a little feel. If I believe this, and not everybody does, do they? But if I do believe that, and I do, then you see, then this has to shape how I think at an issue, how I look at an issue, and, and where I go, and, and how I respond. This puts that together for me. It, it has to. And you say, but... You know, wait a minute. Okay, I hear what you're saying this morning and I think you've probably hidden some verses somewhere. Because isn't this all at the end of the day about different people's interpretations? I mean, the church doesn't all agree. The the, the church doesn't all have the same view about this. Maybe this is just your problem. I don't know if you noticed uh, this past Thursday in the Richmond Times, there was an article about the Episcopal Church. Uh, and they they've been ordaining gay priests and, and a gay bishop for for over ten years now, about ten years now, and uh, they just gathered in their annual uh, national convention meeting and and voted and approved overwhelmingly that they're going to they're going to do same sex marriages. They're going to rewrite their prayer books and other manuals and things to to be more gender neutral and, and include same sex marriage and all that. So see. You can see somebody, uh, you know, a neutral observer sees the Episcopal church doing that, and then they see me and our church over here doing this, being all hateful and mean, and saying, you, you, you act like it's so clear, but clearly it's not clear. I mean, and haven't we all heard? This is just about your interpretation. But folks, oddly enough, if I were to sit down with the Episcopalians, we don't actually have a disagreement about interpretation. It's not interpretation that is sending us in different directions. I ask you on these verses we read today, were they confusing? Was was it like, hey, there's a lot of ways you can go with that. No, our problem, our difference is not going to be an interpretive difference. Our difference is on the authority of this book. You see, there will be those that will look at this book and say, hey, this this is an important book you know, we all pick out a religion in the world. This is the one I picked out. And and this is the book that kind of shapes and helps me understand my religion and how I choose to, to know God and, and see God. And it it can be a book that's inspiring. It can be a book that is helpful and in difficult times. But at the end of the day, I mean, it's just written by men. It has errors in it. And you know, you, you kind of pick and choose what works for you. You kind of pick and choose what you're going to apply today. And so, see, they don't allow the book to have authority over them but rather they or they would say the church has authority over the book and and so what happens is they go it's not us that are picking and choosing they're picking hey this part I like because it makes me feel good about my religion Ooh, this part's embarrassing let's let's throw that out it makes us look bad it makes us look mean and so they they kick that book that part out But folks, what I believe about this book is that it is the holy authoritative word of God. I don't go to the book and shape it according to my likes and dislikes and hurts and fears. I don't go to the book and shape it around what culture tells me we ought to believe and do. But rather, I let the book shape me. And my likes and dislikes, at least that's the goal. I fail at it at times. I let the book shape what culture is telling. This is the authority in my life. It tells me. I don't tell it. Amen? Amen. Now, so important to have that doctrinal belief. But folks, do you realize the big challenge is not for you and I to have a doctrinal belief. The big challenge is not for you and I to say, this is the authoritative word of God. The big challenge is to let it actually have authority in our lives. You see, that's where we want to be careful not to be hypocrites. That, you know, I go in there and there's something out there going on in the world today that I don't like, that I'm offended by, and I go and I find the verse, yeah, there it is, right there. And boy, you're not allowing the authority of God's word over there. And folks, I'm not saying not to do that. I'm just saying, does the authority of God's word have authority in your life? Is it shaping your sexual morality? Because homosexuality isn't the only issue of sexual immorality going on in the world and in the church. Is the authority of this word shaping your finances? What you do with money, how you think about money? Is the authority of this word shaping how you look at people who've hurt you and offended you? Is it guiding you in forgiveness? Is is this book, is the authority of this book guiding how you understand God? Or is your idea of God shaped by your feelings and what culture tells you God ought to be like? See, it's one thing to say, I believe in the authority of this book. Boy, it's quite another challenge to let it actually have authority in my life. And folks, I want to end last, last thing today, I kind of, as we wrap up, I, I want to look at how do you and I move forward in looking at this? Now, when I say this, there's two ways and i'm only looking at one and so there's a little deficiency in my message today because there's something pretty big i'm not going to cover and that is how do we look at the issue and when i say look at the issue how do we move forward with government with culture in engaging in discussion debate there, there's that way but, but then we also and what i am going to address this morning how do we deal with the individual How do we look at the person? I think probably a lot of us do interact, do relate, or we try to explain to others how we would interact and and how we would relate. How do we hold the truth and be loving at the same time? And we're going to see Jesus show us how to do both. Would you look with me quickly at John chapter eight, John chapter eight, and I'm going to begin reading in verse one. If you have a Bible, you'll find John in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you get to Acts, you've gone too far. John chapter 8, verse 1. It says there, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning He came again to the temple. All the people came to Him, and He sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to Him, Teacher! This woman's been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Now right away, you know there's something not quite right about these guys' motives. Because the last I checked, it takes two people to commit adultery. Are you with me? You found that? Where's the other one? So right away, there's something that's not right about this gang. And the next verse says, their motive certainly is in question. Verse 6. They This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and he he wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who was without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bit down and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. I want to make three quick observations from this passage. The first observation is a warning to church people. A a, a warning to the the Bible readers, the, the believers. You know what's interesting in the story? Who are the bad guys in this story? It's you and me. <laughs> it's the believers. It's the one toting the scripture. Hey, Jesus, this woman's been caught in sin and, and this is what the scripture says. What, what are we going to do? Did you know Jesus never corrects them? He never says that adultery is okay now. We're not, we're not me and the father. We're not that bothered by it anymore. He doesn't say that stoning is not allowed. He, does, he doesn't say this is not sin and he doesn't say this is not a consequence. So, so, so what is the warning? The warning is about where you and me are going with this. The warning is about our attitude. Now this fits right into our series. Second Corinthians chapter five, what were we invited by God to join him in doing? Condemnation? No, we were invited by him to join him in reconciliation. There is a sin here. And if there is no turning, if there is no repenting, it will end in condemnation. But my goal right now is to see if we can bring about reconciliation. My goal right now is to communicate the love and the forgiveness of the Father. Whereas they are wanting to run straight ahead to condemnation. And that's what Jesus is correcting here. It's not that we're saying sin's okay. It's not that there's no consequence for sin. It's that you and I are to be involved in a prejudgment. We're to be involved in a pre-step where we deliver. What did it say in 2 Corinthians 5? Hey, if you'll repent, if you'll turn from sin, God will not count your sins against you. That's what we've been invited to do. Now, as I say that, I want to correct something real quick. The most misquoted, misused verse in all the Bible. Don't judge me. You ever heard that? Yeah, we use that. Actually, it's not the unbeliever. It's usually a bunch of believers that use that with each other. Don't judge me when you're telling me that I'm living out of God's word. When I'm living. Don't, don't judge me. Okay, now, does that, what, what Jesus is showing us here. And that statement, don't judge me. Does that mean we never say anything is wrong? No. Folks, the statement, don't judge me, it did come out of Jesus' mouth. It is found in Matthew chapter 7. And in that, what is judgment? Judgment is when the gavel comes down. Judgment is when condemnation is set. This is what it looks like when a believer is being judging. They look at a person. They look at that particular person's sin. And in this case, that particular sin offends me. That particular sin disgusts me. As a matter of fact, I'm so bothered by you and your sin, I don't care if you go to hell. I hope you go to hell. That is a judgmental attitude. That is what Jesus is addressing. What were we told to do? We were told to build bridges and to carry the gospel. I'm not building a bridge to that person. I'm not I'm not I don't care I don't care whether they come to God or not. They can what? They can go to hell. That's being judgmental, folks. That's what the Bible is telling us not to do. Because over and over the Bible does tell us To encourage each other with the word of God. And sometimes that means saying, hey brother, God says not to sin. God says not to sleep with your neighbor's mate. Hey, God says not to steal. God says not to cheat. Folks, it's not judgmental to call something wrong when God said it. That's not being judgmental. You know, I said a moment ago that I believe this book because the answers correspond with reality. You see, right now, America thinks they're so loving. And, and, and boy, to say anything wrong, that's just hateful, isn't it? You're just a hateful, unkind, mean person to say that something is wrong. Love just accepts it. You, you don't, don't be judgmental. But, but folks, it's not unloving to say something is wrong. You see, while it feels real good to say, yeah... We really are loving and we just accept everyone. That feels good, it sounds good, but guess what? That answer doesn't work. Try raising a child and never saying anything's wrong. Try being a teacher in a classroom where you can never say anything is wrong. Try running a business and nothing is wrong. Folks, that's not real. Feels good, sounds good, it just doesn't actually work anywhere. There are things that are wrong and it's not judgmental to say something is wrong when we go to God's Word. Second observation, very quick. Jesus shows us what, folks? He shows us love and acceptance. What do we see in the story? When when the church was ready to stone, Jesus said, no, no, we're going we're to love and we're going to accept. Folks, John chapter 8 is, is just a beautiful picture of what this entire series has been about. Filtered. Looking at a person, looking at an issue through the lens, through the... The filter of the gospel. Yes his ultery is wrong. Yes he could have brought about judgment. But right now what I'm going to do is. I'm going to look at this through, through love. And through acceptance. And folks that's our goal. Our goal with the homosexual. Our goal with anyone. Any sinner. Is to be able to build that relationship. Or as I've been saying these last couple of weeks. Build that bridge so we can deliver that life-changing that life-changing message of God's love and acceptance. Third last observation, okay, this is a big one. Accepting of the sinner is not approval of the sin. Accepting the sinner is not approval of the sin. And this is how you do both, folks. And this is what and I'm not really thinking of the world right here. I'm thinking of the church. This is what we really miss. This is what we really get wrong. Jesus ended the story with three words. Sin no more. Did he love her? Yes. Did he accept her? Yes. Did he forgive her? Yes. Does that make adultery okay? Don't ever do this again. Do you realize that's how the story ends? Hey, I love you and I forgive you. Let's not ever walk down this road Again. Okay? Accepting the sinner is not approval of the sin. Folks, we preach sin. But not to throw a stone. We preach sin to build the backdrop by which we present God's goodness, His love, and His forgiveness. You know, folks, I think, and this is commentary now. I I, I think something very big happened Friday, June 26, 2015. And it's, it's not actually about homosexuality. What we saw a little over a week ago on Friday was the end of cultural Christianity. What, what do I mean by cultural Christianity? It means it's the cultural thing to do. If you're going to be a good member of society, you're going to be a good banker, a good insurance salesman, you're going to be considered a good person in the community, you're going to go to church. First Baptist, first Pres, first Methodist, first this, first... You're going to be in church. That's just what you do. You know, that idea, are you a Christian? Well, of course I'm a Christian. I'm in America, aren't I? That, that's cultural Christianity. It, cultural Christianity does not necessarily produce anything like a real and genuine Christian. So it may not actually be a bad thing that cultural Christianity has formally and officially come to an end in America. But what it means for those who are a a genuine follower, a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, folks, the day of not knowing what this book says is over. The day of, well, I think it says, well, well, somewhere in there it's, that's over. It is time to know what God's word says. It is time to know where it says it. It is time to get good at effectively, faithfully, gently, lovingly, convictingly be able to share what it says. And folks, it is time, and this is what separates the cultural Christian from the genuine believer and follower of Christ. It is time that we not just believe stuff about this book. But that we give everything in our heart and mind to obeying what it says in this book. Like I said a moment ago, it's one thing to say, I believe this is the word of God. When you read it, does it have that kind of authority in your life? Or are we, as we've been accused of doing, kind of picking and choosing? Hey, this I like. This makes me feel good. Uh, Not so much that. If it's the authoritative word of God, then you don't have the right to enter it and pick and choose what culture tells you to pick and choose. You don't have a right to go in there and pick and choose what your feelings tell you to pick and choose. This is the authority that God has placed into our lives. And the good news is, folks, it's not hoops to jump through. All those rules, all that moral code, it's not hoops to jump through, ways to keep you out of heaven. All those hoops are ways we can know the character, the purity, the faithfulness, and the love of God who wants you to know his love in heaven. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm a hypocrite. I stand in front of thousands of people every single week and talk about what I believe and the way it is and the way it should be. And yet, Lord, I know in that book there are things communicated that are, my life hasn't quite submitted to that. My life hasn't quite yielded to that. Lord, there's things I say I'm sorry for, but sometimes I'm just saying my sorries and not really committed to repenting and changing Lord, I know in my own life, there's, there's too, many, too many times where I've not listened to those last three words. Sin, no more. And I'm sorry for that. Lord, what a valuable place we have reached in American history where Christianity can no longer be a game. A little cultural thing we do to, to look good and be accepted. We now have the opportunity, possibly at cost and discomfort, To really pursue what it means to be a genuine faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And I would pray for myself. I would pray for each person in this room. Each one watching over the internet right now. God may we be such a people. May it begin with a commitment to get into your word and know what it says. May it be followed within a commitment to obey what we're taught. We ask for your help in this, Jesus, and we're grateful that as we ask for your help, there is the backdrop of your grace and your love and your forgiveness. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.